Today's episode of Home Row is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word, and it also inspires lifelong discipleship. The CSB is equally suited for serious study or for sharing with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Learn more at csbible.com. I'm I'm writing. You know how to write. Without the without the without the writing, you have nothing. I'm writing. Welcome back to another episode of Home Row, and I'm your host Jeff Metters. And on today's show, I have the first Ortland to to be on the show. Gavin Ortland is here. What's up, man? Hey, Jeff. Good to be with you. So, Gavin, for the people out there who don't know who you are, um, and uh, just want you to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, um, uh, job, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm a pastor. Um, we live in Ojai, California, which is about 80 miles northwest of L.A. in Ventura County. And um, I have a family. We have uh, three kids, ages six, four, and two, and then one more on the way. So um, my wife's name is Esther, and our kids are Isaiah, Naomi, and Elijah. And um, yeah, we've been here at our current church for about 15 months. Before that, we lived for one year in Chicago, and I worked at a seminary there uh, writing a book. And then before that, we were in the Pasadena area. So we've been in California for a while. And yeah, um, love pastoring. Um and uh, yeah, that's kind of a, a brief overview, I guess. Yeah, I'm so glad that you pronounced the city that you live in because I had no idea how to say it. As long as you don't say Ojai, yeah. people will run you out of town if you do that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a definitely an unusual name. So Yeah, O-J-A-I, right? That's right, O-J-A-I, and it's pronounced Ojai. Ojai. So what's the, uh, what's the like etymology of that word? Or I guess what's the okay. origin? It's a Native American word, and I've act. It's conflicted. What I've heard different reports of what it means, but the most common answer is that it means the nest. Okay. Um, and it has something to do with the geography of this area. So we're in a valley, and um, I think people thought of it as like a nest area. Hmm. But um, yeah, so it's kind of interesting. But um, yeah, and it's a fascinating place to live. It's it's really beautiful. Um, it's a little bit, you know, you're far enough away from LA. You don't have the smog, you don't have the traffic. It's a very quiet place. Um, it's yeah, it, it's, we can talk about Ohio if you want. It's pretty fast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like when I see the pictures of it, uh, on like, you know, been to your church's website and, and stuff and looked and thought, man, this looks like it's in Hawaii or something. It is like surrounded by mountains. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's in the it's mountains all around. It's a kind of a farming place, so it's pretty green, and we get a little bit more rain and a little bit more seasonal variation than L.A. or San Diego would get. Um, so it greens up a little bit sometimes in the spring, and um, it's act it's so it's a smaller place. So Ojai has about seven thousand people. The whole Ojai Valley has about twenty thousand, and um, it's actually shrinking. Hmm. So it's getting so expensive to live here. It's kind of changing from a farming community to kind of a Hollywood getaway place. So a lot of people are buying a second home here to get out of L.A. So it's becoming more expensive. So um, it's a challenge to be a pastor here because 
you don't have a huge population to begin with, and then you have people leaving the area. And then on top of those two things, you have just a lot of kind of weird spirituality. So it's a very spiritual place, but any kind of institutional religion is pretty small. There's no large churches here. Um, you know, most people um, that you might bump into if you say you're a pastor, you know, I'm at the barbershop and whenever I'm there, people ask, what do you do for a living? I say I'm a pastor. Fascinating responses to that. Usually it's something like, oh, I don't know how anybody could do that. You know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's not a very spiritually vibrant place at all. I would say it's a very spiritually dark place. So challenging place to be a pastor, but also a beautiful place. And we're, we're grateful to be here. We feel called to be here. So. So when you're, when you're there in, in Ohio, what's, what's some of the stuff you like to do for fun? Um, I love the West Coast. I love everything about California. We just love being out here. So we love the ocean. We're about 20 minutes away. That's probably my favorite place in all the world is to, to go to the beach. Um, sometimes body surfing, sometimes just being there. Um, uh, sometimes we'll go kayaking and do stuff like that. Um, I also love the mountains. So I love hiking. Um, so anything outside like that. And, um, yeah, I just kind of, I we've been playing basketball with some of the guys in our neighborhood lately. Um, go on lots of walks with my wife and the kids in the, in the stroller, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, we try to be outside as much as we can because it's, it's usually pretty nice here, especially this time of year. Yeah, A lot like Houston, I imagine just beautiful <laughs> year round. Uh, it's you, brutal. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, I, I love asking, you know, people that come on the show how they became writers and, and you come from a legacy in a, a family of, of writers and pastors and scholars and theologians. Uh, so, you know, growing up, did you think you were going to become a, a scholar and now you got your PhD at Ted's, right? You know, I actually went to Fuller, Fuller so okay. for my PhD. And then I was at, I worked at, at Ted's at okay. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for one year um, after it's kind of like a postdoctoral fellowship after my PhD. Okay, cool. Uh, and your, your PhD was in what at Fuller? It was in historical theology. So the theology of the church throughout history, um, with a focus on Anselm, who was a medieval theologian. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that was the focus there. And to answer your first question, no, I never thought I would be a writer or a scholar. Um, I was actually not serious about school at all growing up. Um, just kind of a B student, just kind yeah, of me too. You know. Yeah. I just never cared really. Um, I was more into sports and other things. And then when I was in high school, I started being a little bit interested in just reading things. I, I remember I read some CS Lewis books when I was, I think a junior in high school. And I started to get a little bit interested in just learning and, um, and I guess I was never bad at writing, but I never had any thought of it. And then I think it was in kind of just a gradual thing throughout college. And then especially when I felt a call to ministry when I was doing youth ministry while I was in college and that final year of college. Um, and then the right after that was seminary. Um, that was a time where I began to just I kind of fell in love with scholarship and learning. And I just found that whole world to be kind of life giving and kind of fun. Um, so that's when I became a little bit more serious of a student. Um, but even now it was not really a thought to be a writer, you know, it was just a love of learning. And I think writing just kind of fell out naturally from, from that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always so curious of how we get there. I mean, I, I grew up in the same exact same way. I did not care about reading. I didn't care about writing, really, until I felt a, a draw to to ministry and started going to Bible college. And I realized I gotta actually learn how to study and how to read with intention and to write, you know, coherent stuff, not just for word count to meet the assignment and get the grade, but to actually process the information and learn. And, uh, God just started to do a work and, and all of those things. Um, were, were there people along the way that as you, you know, was it writing papers or, um, as you were preaching or whatever that encouraged you like, Hey, you should, you should really think about writing. Are there people you could point to like that? Um, I think the biggest encouragement was people who gave me opportunities. Um, so like an early, uh, opportunity was just writing some things for the gospel coalition, um, which is a website where I really wasn't writing anything, but I think I had one book review. I think the way it started is my brother punted on a, doing a book review for them and recommended me. So I got to do it. And then I did another one and then, you know, it kind of went like that. And then I just started writing stuff for them. And, um, I was just grateful they gave me a chance. You know, I, I was really a nobody. I was just a youth pastor with, um, I guess at some point in there I'd started my PhD at Fuller, but I really didn't have any writing experience prior to that. So, um, yeah, that was when a lot of stuff began for me, just in terms of my own love for the craft of it. You know, just it, it, to me, there's a, a joy in thinking through how are you going to make this as accessible as possible, um, as winsome as possible, as clear as possible. So that was a that was a big encouragement. Um, yeah, let's see. And then people. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there were some people in college, some of my college professors who were encouraging, gave good feedback. But um, honestly, it's just been kind of a random lone road. I, I, it hasn't been something that I've really thought about all that intentionally. It's something that's just sort of fallen out through circumstances and through opportunities. And then I'd say the biggest thing has just been my own internal love for it. And that kind of drives you, you know, and that kind of sustains you. Um, and when you get something rejected, you keep trying because you have that inner, um, love for the craft and desire to express things. So, um, that's, that's kind of how it's fallen out for me, I guess. Yeah. You've got tons of, of articles and book reviews. Uh, you can go to Gavin's website, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, just gavinortland.com and they're on publications. Uh, tons of great articles and, and essays uh, spanning from scholarly to book reviews, uh, Gospel Coalition, Mere Orthodoxy, Desiring God for the Church, uh, and then and then lots of lots of book reviews. And what I love is now you've your your first uh, non Bible study. So you write a Bible study with uh, Crossway through the Knowing the Bible series, the First and Second Kings, which is so great. Uh, wonderful books, of course. But then your your first book, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future, dropping, uh, it's in October, right? It's this month? Yep. Yeah, it comes out October 28th. Yeah, so cool. And then you've got uh, some other, I'm really excited for, I mean, you got lots of great stuff coming out, stuff on Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, um, Anselm's Pursuit of Joy, uh, this one, which you and I talked about a while back, that finding the right hills to die on, the case for theological triage, also with, coming out with Crossway in 2020. Can't can't wait for that one. And did you know it's already listed on Amazon? Have you seen that? 
Yeah, somebody pointed that out to me the other day, so that was kind of fun to see. They did, once again, an amazing job with the cover. Yeah. It's so yeah. cool for Crossway. That they're, everybody there, my experience has been does such a professional job, but I really appreciate the people who work on the art side of things with the cover design. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah. See that dropping April 21st, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. What a man, we need that so much uh, in, in our day. But I, I wanted to bring you on to talk about your the book that's coming out this month, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future. So what what is kind of the, the thesis of the book? You hear a lot of people now talking about theological retrieval and, and retrieving uh, different views and, and orthodoxy. So what is theological tr- retrieval and why do we need it? And then I'll ask a follow-up of like, why do, why do writers, why should we pay attention to theological retrieval? Okay. Okay. So yeah. So theological retrieval, it has kind of become a technical word and it's kind of a trend right now, especially in more academic circles, but it basically just means drawing from historical theology to do theology today. So, you know, engaging historical theology for the purpose of constructive theology today. So going back to the great theologians of the past, whether they be in the way distant past, like the church fathers or more recently, um, and, uh, engaging in, uh, dialogue with them to do theology today. So the book is all about how as evangelicals today, we seem to be in, in uh, a special need for that. Um, and I draw attention to a lot of different things that I think indicate that. One of them has been for me personally, just had a lot of friends who have left evangelical right. churches or contexts and become either uh, Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, or in many cases Anglican, um, and or, or just uh, some other more liturgical, more historically rooted tradition. Um, and I've just tried to understand that. And I, I think there's a thirst in a lot of younger people, especially people like my age and younger. So I'm 36. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of millennials, a lot of younger people have this aching sense of a need for, um, wanting to be connected to something that is historically deep and isn't just a thing of yesterday. And I know a lot of people who are really turned off by, kind of the what they see as the more uh, seeker-friendly and consumeristic models of church. And they're really into liturgy. They're really into reading, you know, some of the, some of the classic uh, texts of spirituality, like Thomas Akempis from the Middle Ages and people like that. Um, they're wanting something more rigorous and more substantive, um, both in terms of theology and worship. So I think there's that, that need. And then I also see you know, within evangelicalism, we've had some of these squabbles about, say, the Trinity in the summer of 2016, right. and all of that that came up. And then there's been a few other things kind of in that same area of in the doctrine of God that to me have been indicators that we need to do better at understanding like classic Trinitarianism and the classic creeds of the church and um, some of these doctrines that as evangelicals we haven't had to fight over, like the doctrine of God is a good example. We haven't had to fight over that, so we can tend to just assume that. Um, so I think um, 
I think sometimes we're just kind of ignorant as evangelicals about the history of some of these doctrines. And we don't know, you know, a lot of evangelicals will reject something like the idea that God is simple, divine simplicity, that doctrine. A lot of evangelicals would just say, well, I don't see that in the Bible. And so we reject it. And sometimes we're not aware of how much historical backing it has and why it was important to people and that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of reasons why evangelicals just need to do better at being historically rooted. And I think it can meet needs. I know a lot of the book just comes from my own experience of finding so much that is helpful back in church history. And I've even, I I know this is a strong way to put it, but I've even kind of talked about it as um, like finding food when you're hungry. Um, The things that church history has to offer are such a helpful corrective for us in the modern West and just the, the instincts that, that I know I have growing up in the modern West of um, just the, the barrenness of our culture and the lack of transcendence for me going back in church history has been one way to find correctives to that. And I think that has implications for so much of life. And one, one area it has implications for is theology, you know, how we think about theology. So the book is all about that. It's, I hope it's a helpful book. It is a little more academic. So I know for some people it'll be, but I've tried to write it for pastors too. So it's kind of a a semi-academic book, I would say. And it just has the first half is kind of a manifesto, just making the case kind of a a little bit what I've outlined here, just why we need this. And then the second half is some case studies or examples uh, of it. So um, that's just a broad overview and we can dive in on any, any of that that you want. That's good. I mean, I I think of it as it's so important that we, you know, the phrase in our culture that is, we use all the time is, Hey, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. And Mm -hmm. I think theological retrieval is just one way for us to think about, I don't need to reinvent or think I need to trailblaze some new path here that the, our brothers and sisters before us have talked a lot about all these issues and have laid, if not the whole, you know, structure for us on how to think about some of this, but at least the groundwork or the side beams or the roof. And, um, and maybe we're just putting different shingles on because of, you know, cultural context or whatever, but a lot of it's there. Um, and I know personally, man, I, I do resonate with this so much cause I, I grew up Southern Baptist and, and like hardcore Southern Baptist. And I don't think I had ever heard of the apostles creed till college. Right, And there was so much of it that if it wasn't Southern Baptist history or Texas history, it's like, we didn't care. (laughs) You know, it's like, those were the two things. Uh, We knew we were reformed Baptist. So we liked everything that happened around 1517. um, And then it happened West, you know, throughout Europe. And then after that, it's like, who cares? Um, so I, I really, I'm so interested in theological retrieval right now. And that's part of my, as I'm beginning some of my PhD prep work, and I'm thinking about uh, retrieving the resurrection in sermons and liturgy and, and how that happens and has happened throughout church history and how it should happen today. So when I saw your book, I was like, oh man, this is going to be so, so interesting. Uh, so, uh, so let's think about it from, from the aspect of writing. And we know how important it can be for pastors. Um, but what about writers? So you've got... Um, just your average blogger, uh, somebody maybe who's writing, wants to write for the Gospel Coalition or whatever, how can they build habits of um, theological retrieval? Mm. Well, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think one thing is just 
um, trying to help people not be intimidated by these old texts, by, by going back to the past. I think a lot of people have the kind of an intimidation factor of, you know, just reading some of their names. Uh, like you yes. can't even yes. some of their names. It's like, is it Athanasius or, you know, how do you even uh, say the name? Yeah, with Augustine, there's always a fight. So what? Yeah. So you you've Augustine. done a lot of scholarly work with him. What's the official pronunciation? Let's let's settle it. <laughs> okay. So I, I I say Augustine, and then for the other guy who was the missionary in to Britain, I say Augustine. But for the guy, you know, the main guy, the Augustine of Hippo, I say Augustine. Cool. I've heard it both ways, but that's how it usually is. Yeah. And I so, I, I did on Twitter the other day. I don't know if you saw it. Where you know I was reading all this stuff. You got Augustine of Hippo, Irenaeus of Leon. You got all these. I thought, man, these cool old guys—they get their last name or some kind of you know, kind of derivation of or derivative of their name, whatever, and then the location. And so I changed my Twitter name for the weekend to be Metters of Tomball. <laughs> and so, so if you were, would you be Ortland of Ohio? Is that what yours would be? I guess. Well, I'm the only Ortland in Ohio, so I guess I got a good shot at that one. Yeah, oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you get famous, that's a sign that, that you're famous in church history if, if you're labeled by the city. But um, yeah, so but I, I so yeah, I just think the um, there's an intimidation factor. And my encouragement to people has been, first of all, you actually need to know that what these guys wrote is often easier to read than contemporary theology. Um, a lot, much of it is occasioned by a disagreement or a fight. And it's not written as a specialist thing. It's written for the whole church. Um, many of these classic texts, they've, there's a reason why they've been around so long. They've captivated readers, and um, many of them were written for the sake of catechesis, which just means teaching. So, like, you know, they'd be used, you know, for people who are raised in the church and, and what we would call something like Sunday school, and they're used for education. So like an example would be, so Thomas Aquinas, um, one of his best known, he was perhaps the best known theologian in the medieval church. One of his best known books is called Summa Theologica, and it's filled with these questions. And they're really easy to read. They, there's, they're not that uh, long and they're not that complicated. But for me, my experience getting reading him is that actually there's so much you can learn. He's actually just incredibly skilled at at writing in a clear way and at breaking things down in such a logical way. And of course, as a modern evangelical, you may not agree with everything that he says. But um, so, my, so the first encouragement to people is just to give it a try. Just pick up some classic texts and sit down. You may be surprised at how easy it is to read and how much benefit there is to be had. Yeah, cool. I wonder, are there some writers that you would think, okay, you, go check out, like, go read one book from this guy. Go read one book from from this person. Uh, who are people that yeah, pop into your mind that you you wish uh, modern writers and and pastors and thinkers today would would interact with a little bit more? Yeah, I think so. The one I just mentioned, Thomas Aquinas, is a good example of one, and and he, you know, I think there's this danger, kind of like what you were saying with your upbringing in Baptist context. Part of what I'm trying to say in this whole book is that. The whole evangelical movement um, can sometimes be a little bit narrowly focused and just, you know, we have certain things that we've had to fight battles over, like the doctrine of Scripture. And there are certain things that are kind of buzzwords and, and, and trendy in our circles, like the whole idea of being gospel-centered. Right. But there's other things that are in church history that Christians have wrestled with that we just don't even think about that much. Um, and, 
I think some of the times, some of the reasons why we have these disputes about, say, the doctrine of the Trinity and some of the positions being advocated are, I think, unknowingly being advocated that are, but they're in contrast to kind of the sum of Christian thought throughout the centuries is because we've neglected these other things. So someone like Thomas is a great example of just kind of broadening us. And I think someone who's writing for the Gospel Coalition is reading stuff like that. It will have to broaden you, I think, and introduce you to new conversations. And I would say um, one really helpful example would be um, Augustine's Confessions. Um, I just look at that book as one of the books that I think every Christian should try to give a stab at. I mean, it has all the same benefits of what we're already saying, of just pulling you into different conversations. Um, but it's also such a spiritually rich book. Yeah. And it's just all about this guy who, again, trying to take away the intimidation factor, this guy who tried to find happiness in every other way. And finally, he kind of came home and found the love of his soul in God and and fully had those needs of his heart met in God. And it's one extended prayer to God. It's kind of a love prayer Um and he, he describes his conversion as like the guy who's sleeping in on a Saturday morning and just lying there in bed long after he's woken up and then finally decides to get out of bed. That's how he says like he converted. He's like he knew it was true and just finally got there. Um, and I think a lot of people, like especially people in our culture, like younger men in our culture, will resonate with Augustine's struggle. And um, if you're just working with like John Calvin and the Reformed tradition – there are certain things you'll be drawn into from that tradition. And I think if you if you switch from that and read Augustine, he'll pull you in a different direction. There will be um, just different, different nuances that get picked up from someone like Augustine that I think help us and can broaden us both in the Reformed movement today and also just as evangelicals today. Yeah. So those are two, two examples. Man, that's so so true. I, I'm taking a one more uh, master's level class at Southern to to get all my equivalencies and stuff up for for PhD stuff. And the class I get to take is uh, classics of Christian devotion. Um, and so we got to read uh, really old stuff. And one of them is Augustine's Confessions, the Oxford uh, World Classic Edition. And so I, I had been reading that one of the newest versions that came out, I think it's Sarah Rudin, uh, her okay. translation of it. And it's, the language is really, really colorful. I, I would liken it to, uh, if Eugene Peterson did it, like it's, it's the, it's very modern sounding, which is great, but we got to read this edition. And I was reading some yesterday, just hanging out, you know, reading during commercials and pausing the game and, and, you know, reading some of it, just enjoyed so much of it. And I, I was so struck by just his love and his passion and the, and the way that he thinks about things, um, how he calls God. He says, my, my, the light of my heart, bread of the inner mouth of my soul, the power which begets life in my mind and in the innermost recess of my thinking, that I abandoned you to pursue the lowest things of your creation. I was dust going to dust. Like Calvin's not writing like that. Mm-hmm. That that is not happening. Um, and I, what I when I think about your answer to the question, I think sometimes for writers, and I I know this about myself, I, I want a quick fix. Well, how can I have a quick, uh, you know, tire patch of theological retrieval? What can I do? 
and and when I when I think about your answer, it's really you, you got to just build the habit into your life of reading the old stuff. Um, it's not going to be a quick fix overnight, and yeah, you could get it maybe. Greg Allison's historical theology, if you're writing an article about the church for the Gospel Coalition or whatever, or or you're prepping a Bible study or a, a lesson somewhere, and you could open up a resource like that and look at early church view and Reformation view and modern view, and then all that's all that's really good. But I, I think we've got to build these habits now of reading Akempis, reading Augustine, reading uh, John Owen, um, or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I, I, I totally resonate with that, too. And, yeah, many times people ask about writing advice. And, uh, you know, yeah, I think you're exactly right. People want a quicker fix, usually. And I think, to me, there is, I mean, there are things that you can do. There are texts you can get about writing that you can learn from. But I think, for me, the heart of it, like 80% of it, at least, is being a good reader. And And I would say, to broaden it as much as possible, not only you know, the ancient texts of Christianity, but just reading everything that you can get your hands on that's interesting to you. Um, and, you know, uh, the broader a reader someone is. Um, so if we're doing retrieval just for the sake of being a good writer, not for the sake of being a good theologian, if that's the kind of retrieval we're talking about, you know, reading reading Shakespeare, reading Plato, reading mm novels you know um i think the broader someone reads the uh, the better writer they will be and i really don't think it's possible to read too broadly the thing that i use to try to encourage people is just to say what do you enjoy reading because if someone is reading and it's just a, a labor you know it's just a, a chore i think it's going to be harder to get benefit out of it just like if you're working out and you really can't stand what you're doing you can get the workout done, but um, it's going to be hard to sustain that. People tend to do what they love and what they enjoy. Whereas if you're playing basketball or something that you just love to do, you're not even thinking about right. the fact that you're getting work. You, you can play for three hours and you've got this incredible workout. You haven't even thought about it. Similarly, if, if you're passionately curious about something, you're just going to learn. You're going to be on Wikipedia. That's going to lead you to somewhere else. You're going to find a book. You're going to read the book. That book will lead you to other books. And that so I think the most important ingredient for writers is to be curious and to just, you know, have a mind that inquires. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said there, there are no uninteresting uh, subjects. There are just uninterested people. Yeah. And I think, you know, the world is fascinating um, and cultivating curiosity and then reading widely, I think, is the best way to um, – grow in our skills of writing because we'll just naturally through that process pick up how language works and then we'll we'll broaden in our our understanding of things and ideas too so that's how i try to encourage people love it when you man you, you obviously you churn out a lot of a lot of content and then and we're both pastors and so we have you know the weekly sermon uh, you've got other meetings other things that you teach that that come up on, on the regular and then you're also, you know, writing articles and you've got a slew of books uh, coming out. And so what, what are some of your writing disciplines? Uh, what are some of your habits that you have that, that would be helpful to share with people? I, I know we're not, we're all wired different. We all have different capacities, but what is uh when you've got those deadlines and those projects or stuff you're working on, what does it look like for you? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, a couple things here that I'll say. One is um, it really helped me to be in Chicago for that year. So the reason we moved to Chicago was to work at the seminary, and my whole job was just to write. I I got a a grant to do research at the seminary, and we took that for a couple of reasons, um, personal reasons of just needing a sabbatical. Um, for ministry, but also um, I had these projects I really wanted to do. So some of the things that are coming out, in fact, a lot of them were written during that year. And I know most people won't have the chance to do that exact thing, but I do think it's worth kind of just making a point about sabbaticals. Um, There is a place for, and I just, if I could speak to elder boards and others who could um, just to be an advocate for pastors to say, hey, you know, if your pastor's been serving at your church for a while, think about giving him a sabbatical, even if it's just a six-week thing in the summer or something where he can get away and get personally refreshed, because it is hard to churn out things amidst the weekly grind of, of sermons. And that year in Chicago for us, I'll never, for, I mean, I'll be grateful my whole life for that year because it was just such a cool opportunity personally, and then in terms of getting to catch up on stuff that I just didn't have time for, for like the past five years and had been kind of building, you know, in my planning, but I just hadn't had the time to do. So that's one thing. Um, if, if people ever can take a sabbatical, that can really be huge. For me, weekly, my weekly schedule is I basically set aside Monday mornings to write and to edit stuff right now. And that's not nearly enough to do anything of of quality, but I just don't have the bandwidth right now to do any more than that. So I've kind of made peace with the fact that for this fall, um, I'm just going to be editing stuff and maybe real small things like one blog post here or there. I'm not going to have any major projects. And part of that is I just finished a bunch of things and I feel like I want to devote my energies to my church and my family for this immediate season. Um, but one thing I've done that might be useful advice for people or just an idea to consider in those busier seasons, I've woke up an hour early and then had that first morning, uh, first hour of the morning to work. And my experience was that my mind is clear at that time in the day. Whereas in the afternoon, if I try to like squeeze writing in between two meetings in the afternoon, you know, if I'm yeah. like between one and two, I, I go, it, my mind is, is distracted by other things. It's hard to focus um, I just realized that's not a good time. So I, I tried to do that, and that actually was helpful. Um, and what I experienced was I'd then be thinking about whatever I did throughout the rest of the day. And so the thoughts would come into me, into my mind later in the day, because it was the first thing I did that morning. So that's one way in those real busy seasons, like, you know, maybe if someone's listening to this and they have a deadline and they don't have, they can't do a sabbatical um, and they don't know how to create the space, just those you know, waking up a little earlier, um, can be one, one way forward. And then another, the other thing for me that I found useful is just when I'm passionate about something, I really can't control that. And over the past two years, I've been a little bit burned out. And so I've tried to throttle back because I don't want to just force it, you know, Right. but, but when I'm passionate about something, um, just go with it. And I, I find that I just have these seasons where I get really intensely interested in something. Um, and I'm just fascinated by something. Um, this is what happened with Augustine and his doctrine of creation. I just became absolutely 
passionately invested in that at a deep level. And when that happens, sometimes I just find I can carve, I just make time, you know, I'll stay up at night, I'll, I'll be reading on the bus, I'll be, you know, thinking about it while I'm working out, you know, it's just kind of there in my mind. Now, that's not always the case. But when I get in those um, seasons where you're really invested in a project, to just really go with that, because I think it's amazing how productive we can be when it's fun, and when it's interesting, and when we're invested. So when people are interested in something, just go with that, you know, utilize that curiosity um, and go with what feels natural. So that's another thing I found helpful, but it is hard. And I would just say, you know, most for pastors, especially, I hope no pastors feel pressure to write things. I don't think every pastor is called to write necessarily. Um, If it's a burden and not a joy, I don't think we have to write. I think when God opens up the door to write, that's a great thing. But it is hard, and it's hard to juggle it all. And I've, like I said, I've made the choice that I'm going to prioritize my family and my yeah. church first. And so for me, writing is kind of on the back burner right now. But when things come up, and I have some long-term projects I'm kind of chipping away at, uh, you know, as I can. But um, there are those seasons where it's really hard to squeeze it in. But those are some thoughts about how to how to do it. No, oh, man, that's such good advice. I. I kind of feel like I'm in the same same spot right now after Humble Calvinism came out and my agent and publisher is asking, hey, what's what's next? What do you got? And I'm thinking, nothing. I don't have any. I had one idea, but apparently it wasn't good enough. So I'm like, well, that's the only ideas I have right now. I got nothing. Uh, I've, the thing I have right now that's really interesting to me, it's, all my energy is going in it towards PhD stuff and... So like, yeah, I, I don't want to force anything. I, I've got little articles and stuff like that that I'm happy to write, but I don't, I don't have any kind of big book idea out there and I don't want to force something. I, I don't want to, I don't want to squeeze a, you know, a, a lemon that's all dried up. That's got, that's got nothing in it. It's not going to help anybody. Right. Oh yeah. I, I resonate with that too. And just the sense of freedom and joy that comes from not needing to, to, you know, just maintain output just for the sake of, and I even take this down to, to the level of Twitter. When I have nothing to say on Twitter, which is a lot, I just have nothing interesting to say. <laughs> just don't say anything. Right. Just totally don't. And it's like, it's so freeing to not, to not, um, to not listen to the pressure that, Oh, but you need to have this amount of output to, you know, maintain your quality or something. It's like, I don't care about that. I want to be authentic. I want to be myself. I want to be healthy. I want to be, um, and, and I want to like speak from my passion and not speak from a sense of pressure or something like that. So, um, I think it's, it's kind of freeing and joyful to just say, yeah, maybe there's times where you have an opportunity to do something, but you don't actually have the internal drive. And I think in that situation, it's perfectly a good thing to just say, yeah, I'm just going to pass and wait till the, to wait till I have the passion again. Now I might be way off with what, what I'm about to ask you, but I think when you're writing, you do not listen to music. Do you? Uh, <laughs> no, I do. I do you listen do. to music. Okay. My, my memory recall was, as you mentioned, Twitter, a image popped into my mind of you wearing headphones, but they weren't headphones. They, they were like the airport, you know, guys with the, with the flags that are waving down the airplane, showing them where to go or whatever, like wearing that kind of headset. So what's up with that? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was kind of making a joke about that once, but yeah, I, so when we lived in Chicago, we all shared an office. And so it was like, it, it was noisy and you know, it was um, like five of us in there and we all had a separate room, but they weren't soundproof. So um, I got those because I needed to block out conversations at times. Um, and that was helpful then. But when I'm working in my own office, I, I typically listen to music. I like, uh, I can't listen to like, you know, really intense music. Um, so when I'm working out, I'd listen to something else, but when I'm writing, it's usually like classical music. Um, so I've been kind of discovering some modern classical okay. music lately that I, I'll have on the background. Yeah. So not always, but I would say almost all the time I have that going. Yeah. So what, what do you, what do you got in the background? Modern classical? Um, Okay, I found I discovered this guy on YouTube called Max Richter. Oh yeah, uh, and I just love it. I can't describe why, but it's like the perfect study music. So yeah, um, and then he's kind of led me to a few others. Um, I'm trying to remember the name. It's a really difficult name to pronounce. I think it's like Ludovico Einaudi, oh, something boy. like that. Uh, yeah, so. Um, and then, yeah, so those are probably the two I have in the background most often. And usually it's through YouTube. So they'll link up to other things that are similar. Um, so yeah, those are some of the ones I listen to. Yeah. I usually try to avoid music with words too. I just want to, I just want me. So I usually do a lot of jazz and, mm. you know, Miles Davis, Coltrane, uh, Davis and Coltrane together. There's a great album where they went on the road together and, and went on tour. Really, really cool. BB uh, King, old school stuff. And then there's a band. I think they're actually I don't know where they are, but called the Lewis Express. They got some really good stuff. And then Spotify just showed me this band the other day and said, "Hey, we think you would like this jazz band." And they were called Fabled. And they got an album called Short Stories. And it's it's probably my favorite jazz album right now. It is so groovy um, and so much fun that sometimes I have to turn it off because I'll just start, you know, acting like I'm playing drums or playing bass with it or something. And, and I, I got to get back to work. I got to finish reading this yeah. book. What am I doing? Yeah, exactly. I, I need to try jazz more. I haven't done that, but I want to. The other thing I'll sometimes do is movie soundtracks. Oh, yeah. Classic. Um, so if, yeah. So those are fun. Those are just those are sort of nostalgic, you know, because one will come on that's from a movie you've seen a long time ago. You just have to be careful. It's not too intense because for me, I, I won't notice it for a while, but I'll start, you know, getting kind of worked up. So you have to be uh, have to be mindful that it's not not too suspenseful. Yeah, I have a this is insane. So I, this writing playlist I've accumulated over the years in Spotify. It's 27 hours and 32 minutes long. Nice. <laughs> it's got uh, the Lone Survivor soundtrack, you know, Explosions in the Sky. Um, oh, yeah. Let's see. The Social Network soundtrack by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Yeah, it's a good one. So good. Um, all the stuff, anything that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have done together is in here. Um, they did like a Vietnam War documentary soundtrack. Uh, they did the Bird Box thing with um, Sandra Bullock, the soundtrack for that. Uh, okay. The, the Dunkirk soundtrack. Oh yeah, I got lots of good stuff in here. Maybe I'll put a link to this in the show notes. All, all the Stranger Things soundtracks, seasons one, two, and three. So uh, it brings a nice little eighties, little eighties vibe. Sometimes, right, right. lots of good stuff. Yeah. So Inception, I keep going. I mean, lots. Obviously, I got twenty-seven hours of music on here. 
so I'll post a link to that in the show notes too. If people want to subscribe to the to the Spotify playlist. Okay, Gavin, I got one one uh, pop quiz question before we go. Um, we'll we'll turn it into two. Um, who do you think will be? Well, first question: Lakers or Clippers? Um, I have grown up with a deep hatred of the Lakers because I grew up in Chicago in the Michael Jordan era. Right. And the Lakers were kind of, you know, one of the few other teams that, um, were, were kind of big when I was growing up. So, um, uh, yeah, I have to go against the Lakers in every situation, no matter what. Perfect. I'm with you. So, so who are you pulling for this season? You know, I haven't even followed it enough to to care anymore. Once we once we moved away from Chicago, I stopped following professional basketball and professional football. I was super into sports when I was growing up. Totally stopped that, started getting more into college stuff. And now the last five to ten years I've gotten so busy with other things, I kind of stopped watching sports. So I feel I kind of miss that and don't like that, but it's kind of where I'm at right yeah. now. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and put you down for as a provisional Houston Rockets fan. We'll just, I'll just put that, I'll just put that there. You don't have to worry about it. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when they win the championship and all that stuff this year. Okay, so, all right, right, sounds good. Well, Gavin, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Uh, where, if people wanted to follow you on social media, where would you uh, point them to go? Uh, I just do Facebook and Twitter. Um, should be easy to find. Uh, love to connect with people there. And then I have a blog, which is GavinOrtland.com. So Ortland is spelled O-R-T-L-U-N-D. So GavinOrtland.com. People can also sync up with me there. Thanks, man. Really appreciate uh, your writing and your voice and your and your ministry and everything that you're doing uh, for for all of us out there and all your writing. So so helpful and needed. If, awesome, uh, if you, oh, thanks, man. If you want to leave a review for the show, you can just scroll down down to the bottom of your podcast app, and you can click the stars, leave a review, share, and all that stuff. It just helps the show get out to more people, and just encourage people to do what we want to do, and that's to so just keep writing. <laughs>